So good evening, everyone. Again, I really hope that you have a sense of feeling settled now that we're kind of halfway almost. It's interesting how even though we're really in the moment, it just keeps going on and on and on, this life. And last night, Joseph talked about all these different kinds of manifestations that um, craving has and its impact on our well-being. I kept asking him today again to just say these four more words one more time of that translation after Upandita spoke for ten minutes. (laughs) Lust cracks the brain. (laughs) I was even thinking, that could be a cool (laughs) t-shirt. I don't know. wonder if people would get it. It would be a nice conversation, perhaps, if you would wear that. And we also have been reflecting last night on, on how this path to awakening, how it sets us into this direction of this unconditional happiness, this balanced state of mind that's not dependent on things to be a certain way, or that they have to become a certain way. And this is really the direction of our, of our training. I do quite a bit of meditation teaching to a wide variety of people in New York. And sometimes I'm in the corporate world, actually. And one of the questions that I've heard several times, by people really you know, sitting and meditating, and they go, what's the end game here? You know, why am I sitting here watching my mind and feeling all this pain? Unconditional happiness. Or sometimes I might even sprinkle in a little more of the Buddhist teaching, because what's so interesting, the Buddha quite often talked about liberation as the absence of things. Like, you know, liberation as non-greed, non-hatred, non-confusion. We can have these moments. I really want to encourage you to notice when these moments, these mini moments of enlightenment are right there. Unconditional happiness. And it's really helpful to have these teachings kind of as a guide or supporting how we are viewing life. The Buddha talked quite a bit about what he called wise view. With this view, when we have this understanding with us, we can relate differently to life. And this view keeps getting wiser and wiser the more we practice, with every moment. Like I mentioned, I do a lot of mindful swimming. And so in the mornings when I go, usually there's the same group of people there. Hardcore swimmers. There's one lady, she's 96, and she got married last year. (laughs) And another elder of ours, um, um, his name is Russell Goings. And he's always present there as well. And um, he's kind of our elder, the wise person among us when we get dressed again. And he shared with us that... um, 
He's a former professional football player, a stockbroker, and the chairman of the, of the board of the Harlem um, Studio Museum. And he has a lot of wisdom, and some of the people call him my lord. But he always puts us on the spot, too, a little bit. So he, he'll go and ask me, Bart, are you still paying too much taxes? <laughs> or when are you going to make your first million? <laughs> And so, you know, he's our elder, we treat him with respect. But um, he recently shared a story where he was with um, his two friends. And he said, I've been debating politics with my two friends. And at the end of our discussion, one of the two friends goes, Junior, listen. And I'm like, sir, did they address you as Junior? <laughs> yeah, this one friend is 101, and the other is 102. And they said, look, Junior, your points, they can be true. Your points can be valid. But they're young. <laughs> they're unseasoned. <laughs> look, you've been over the river a few times, as that's what they told him. But we've been over the ocean and back. <laughs> and he said, you know, when I, when I was with that, he said, my whole view of what I was certain it was about, some humility. I was starting to feel more humble when, that, when I heard that, even though my views might be true. And that's what this practice is also really about, is to keep opening, to never really sell for, oh, this is it. I actually one time went into an interview with Joseph, and I told him, this is it, Joseph. <laughs> and then Joseph goes, well... Maybe you can reframe that as, this is that. <laughs> Not sure if you remember that, but... And again, there's opening, right? So that our view can constantly kind of become wiser and wiser. So this path is this whole life path where everything that we do, say, or think matters. So tonight I'd like to talk about five very specific mind states that could be a hindrance in having this right or wise view. It kind of covers our view, if you will. They're called the five hindrances. And in Pali, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce it right, it's called Nivarana, which could mean kind of covering up. Because the mind is radiant in and of itself, ceaselessly responsive. But when these hindrances meet us, kind of come. What the Buddha said is they prevent us from seeing the good in oneself and seeing the good in others. And they're specifically challenging when we're not mindful of them. And then I also kind of want to inquire with you together, like, how can we actually be mindful of these hindering mind states so that they can become opportunities for growth? Again, influencing our view. So the first one, not a big surprise, especially after Joseph's talk last night, is sensual or sense desire. Again, this, this wanting for an experience to be in a specific way, that we can actually feel that through our senses. 
Often the mind wants something it doesn't have in that moment. One of the things that I've noticed last yesterday when I was listening to Joseph's talk was wanting to remember everything he said. <laughs> have you noticed that? Or when you're on retreat, you really want to go, oh, I have to remember this. You should write that down. It's kind of like this small manifestation of this one thing. Or indulging in thoughts when the retreat is over. Sometimes my mind starts to kind of count how many more days, how many more shavings. It's like this mind kind of plays in all kinds of way to kind of, again, leaning forward into the next moment. One time, there was that, that sense of boredom. My mind started to plan and write a whole book. Oh. The title, You're Never Too Late for the Present Moment. <laughs> and I, it was so clear. If I ever write a book, that will be the title, by the way. And then also just, you know, take that again, that wanting into our daily living. Like when I'm sometimes just waiting for a train in New York and like neutral Vedana might be present, but I'm not really aware of that, obviously. Pick up my phone. There's even an app that tells you, there's an app for everything, there's an app that tells you how many times you pick it up. (laughs) And, you know, without a lot of pride, I'm going to tell you, I'm average around 60 and 80. It's quite a lot. So we're constantly looking for the next thing to give us pleasure. And as Joseph mentioned, so much is in our culture. I too saw an ad, by the way, that for me in my European conditioning was weird. It says, pain, question mark, you need law. (laughs) Is that the first thing? I think you might need care, right? But just this idea of like maybe getting money out of it. And sometimes it's, I mean, I don't want to disrespect it, but... And what I've been noticing is that, you know, this unconditioned happiness that our tr- this, this, this training is about, it's not con- dependent on things to be in a certain way. That contentment, that's the enemy of capitalism. Because we are conditioned to desire again and again. And um, I do a lot of teaching with young people, and um, in one high school, this sense desire was really a very powerful um, contemplation for us. And it really specifically was connected to the phone because kind of everyone more or less admitted that they're more or less um, addicted to the phone. So we came up with this idea <coughs> of having a yoga mat in the middle. 30 of us would sit around and we would all put our devices there all on vibrate or on sound. And I'd ask my wife, Chantal, to call me and text me a few times. And then just sit around. And we as a group with 29 high schoolers, the invitation was to simply watch as we were kind of having our eyes open looking at that pile of cell phones. And so it started. I noticed that no one was sleepy. Everyone was really engaged. And it was a Friday afternoon, which is the hardest class to teach in a high school. 
And then it started, beep, 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 mm, mm, mm. And people started looking around. And I kept just inviting him, just notice what's happening in the body. What's going on in the mind. And then there was one girl, Stephanie, I'll never forget. She all of a sudden started looking around like more, turning her head around. And then she put her hands on her lap and was like, but then she relaxed again. And then beep, 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 it started happening again. And then she got up. And with this attitude of like, you know, she put her hand in the air like, whatever. So she actually went to her phone, picked it up, and then the disappointment in her face, it wasn't for her. She goes, who has the same, you know, ringtone? And we all reflected on this, like how we're so, like really, how this desire can have such a physical component too. So in, in, in being with this, and I really say this word instead of working with it, in being or playing with this, the first step is accurately recognizing. And that's a function of awareness. This is what desire feels like. It's here. Ah. And then to see, perhaps, just like we did in an exercise at the high school, how does it feel in the body? So the next time you really kind of notice that tumbling forward, check the body. Maybe play with feeling tone. Does it feel pleasant? That leaning forward? Is it more neutral? Is it unpleasant? I really like that the Buddha also uses a lot of visual metaphors, because I'm a visual learner. And so, I guess in the time of the Buddha there were no mirrors. So kind of maybe to check how you looked in the morning, you would need a a bowl of water to kind of see your own reflection in it. And so, um, the Buddha said when desire is there, that bowl of water is mixed with lack, turmeric, and dyes. We can't see clearly. I kind of love that image, that water all colored. We cannot see ourselves. And then another very important step, and in our instructions, we will em- emphasize that over the course of the retreat a lot, is to check how are we relating to this experience. What's the mind's attitude when desire is present? And just notice if there might be judgments. I so often saw myself thinking, oh, I should be over this now. And what happens if we keep seeing this over and over again? That's the the repetitive power of this practice. I love how Bonnie said this morning that mindfulness is like a data-collecting device machine. We get all that information, and quite naturally that information turns into understanding. And that understanding leads eventually to wisdom. So that it's wisdom that is saying, "Hmm, this desire might come up, but it's not worth going for it. And in this way, our wise view gets strengthened again. The second hindrance is called ill will. And this is about aversion, about frustration, about anger, not wanting what we have, or not wanting to deal with what's 
what's happening in the moment. There's so many manifestations of it. For example, for me on retreat, the walk after the talk. (laughs) It's like, ah, another walk. (laughs) And I, that was not my walk. (laughs) Not wanting to wait in line. Like, let me go in the middle, that one goes faster. (laughs) And I also, in the beginning of my practice, I was instructed to be mindful of the breath a lot. And I didn't want to be with the breath. I had a great aversion to it. And in my noting, I was actually suggested that, you know, note rising and falling. My voice got really tight, rising, falling, rising, falling. It had that, that quality of striving, of, of actually frustration in it. And that's why I love this wide variety of skillful means that's been offered. So, for example, if being aware of the breath does provide that sense of frustration and it's not really working for you and you've been with it for a few times, know that you have options. Maybe tuning into sounds. That was the revelation for me. And that, would have, that became a very helpful place for me to start the continuity of practice. This is where I usually start when I really start a formal practice, just tuning into sounds. But you might have also noticed that sounds can be a great source of irritation as well. (laughs) One time I was sitting in this hall, it was the first day, and I had six more weeks to go, and there was a a gentleman behind me. He was going like this. And at first, sounds arising. (laughs) Neutral Vedana, feeling tone. But then the mind came in. I don't like this. I don't like this at all. Aversion. Strong aversion, hatred even. Even to the effect that I went uh, to uh, a meeting with my teacher. I said, Carol, Carol Wilson, I said, is this man making all this sound? And she looks me straight in the eye and she goes, we hire people. <laughs> so you can see your hindrances. And you know what? It was so helpful because then I was laughing and then my mouth was open and some dharma could be dropped in again. But it was hard. It was really, really hard. It's not easy to be with ill will. And the bowl simile that the Buddha used for this one is the water is boiling. Cannot see your reflection. Cannot see the good in oneself and in others. And the power of awareness so often starts with a pause. It's not really hard to be aware the challenge is to remember it. And um, my favorite story ever, I'm so proud of this young man that I um, was also, was having, I had him in my classes, his name is Carlos. Carlos was in a residential treatment center in Westchester and we'd come to New York City twice a week for practice. 
and he was about 15. And pause was a big theme for us as a way of kind of being with mindfulness and explaining it. And um, so one time he comes back and he says, the pause works. (laughs) I said, what happened? He said, well, in our cottage, we have to share a room and my roommate deliberately put on my pants. And he knew that I'm not going to like that. And I got really upset. And actually, Bart, I wanted to punch him. And I could feel my fist kind of clench a little bit. And I said, so? I I paused. I said, wow. He said, no, it didn't work. (laughs) I said, oh, okay. What did you do? I paused again. And it didn't work. (laughs) Where is this going? And then he goes, but I paused one more time. One more time, the third time. And with that pause, in the midst of anger, what arose is, I can talk to Lonnie, to Mr. Murphy, you know, my guidance counselor. And actually, I'm going to get in trouble if I do this. And I was like, wow, this is such a powerful image for me that I use when I am with, with, with ill will. Sometimes just bringing that image of Carlos to mind, that really kind of strengthens the inspiration to be with anger, because it's a hard one. You know, we're filled with thoughts that I'm right, you're wrong, and blah, blah. So also with this one, we invite you to accurately recognize it. Oh, there's this hindrance of ill will that's present. And then take that step back. So you've identified the anger. Ask yourself, how am I relating to this? Maybe hating the anger, wanting the anger to go away. If we're not seeing the relationship to that anger, that relationship would only feed it more. So kind of widening and just seeing not just the anger, but also our attitude towards it. And then maybe also notice what else is present. Not so much why, but what. And maybe you might notice, for me, I often feel sadness when there's anger or a sense of disappointment. So we get all that data again, that information transforming into understanding and wisdom. And as we keep seeing it over and over again, we start to touch the universal aspect of all of our experience, the fact that it comes and goes and that we cannot claim ownership over our anger. I love how Zen teacher, poet Thich Nhat Hanh talks about anger. He has this image of a caregiver or a parent holding a crying, upset baby. What would that be if we have that attitude of being with ill will? I love this advice the Buddha gave to his own son, Rahula, when he was a young boy. He said, cultivate, Rahula, a meditation on loving-kindness. By cultivating loving-kindness, ill will is banished forever. Cultivate, too, a meditation on compassion. For the cultivation, for by cultivating compassion, you will find harm and cruelty disappear.
And one of the things that I really appreciate in this teaching is that the Buddha can also suggest it, check from time to time its absence. So we could do this even right now. Just maybe notice if ill will is either present or absent. So the third of the hindrances, when I first heard it in English, I did not know what they were talking about. Sloth and torpor. (laughs) I googled sloth, so cute. (laughs) And then torpor, I had to look up, the internet says, a state of mental and motor inactivity with partial or total insensibility. Maybe that's not quite it. We're talking about sleepiness and dullness as a hindrance. And you know what? I'm also a big um, student of relational Dharma practice. And so I'd like to do an experiment right now. I'm going to ask you to answer this question. And if the answer is yes, I mean, if this answer is yes, then just raise your hand. Who felt sleepy on this retreat once or many times? <laughs> and then see if you can actually open your eyes and just turn around. This is relational practice right here. Kind of knowing, ah, oh, we're all in this together. Could have probably done it with ill will too. <laughs> this was more neutral. I once fell asleep in front of 150 yogis. And I thought I only did a nod once. And I was co-teaching with Dara Williams and Jack Gordfield. And afterwards, it was at 2 p.m. So after lunch, it's my you know, hindrance, sleepiness meditation. He said, started talking about, you know, it's so common that people feel sleepy after lunch. And then he turned to me, right, Bart? <laughs> and I was kind of, at first I felt like, oh, this energy, and I was completely awake. But I, was feel, I felt okay to be an example. <laughs> and there's a heaviness in our body when that happens. Right? Our mind starts to feel drowsy. It usually starts with feeling calm or even concentrated. But then we slowly lull into a, a dream state. It's quite peaceful. A very normal on retreat. It just feels like there's no drive. No energy. The simile bowl is water now covered with algae and plants. I like that. It's like like a heavy blanket in a way. And it's really interest. It's really interesting to see what we can learn from sleepiness. And one of the things that I've really seen quite a bit on retreat specifically is how I would use a nap to just kind of retreat from something difficult. You know, like a lot of discomfort. I'm like, oh, it's 2.30. I could take a nap. (laughs) I wasn't really sleepy, right? My young students, actually, when I asked them, can you think of ways how you can, how you meet, release stress? Quite often I get the answer, sleep. So it's quite of a normal it can happen quite a bit that we, we retreat from experience because we just don't want to deal with it and find comfort in sleeping. 
how to be with it, how to play with it. One of the things that's been very helpful for me is becoming very interested in it. That gives me some energy, like, oh, sleepiness, let me see. Helps to open your eyes. I've seen people already stand, which is something you can always do. And the funniest of instructions ever I've written, written by the Buddha is to pinch your earlobes. You could try that too, or even maybe pull them a little bit. Maybe that's the reason the Buddha statues have these long ears. I don't know. I'll, I'll ask Joseph later. <laughs> oh, Bonnie, Josanne, or I don't know. Do you know? But, you know, it didn't work for me, but it brings that sense of investigation back into the system. Right? Just investigate. Oh, what's sleepiness like? Same thing with boredom. But also to really, out of compassion, know when we're actually really tired. And then to take that nap and to make that into your meditation. I got this one from the internet. It says, sometimes sleep is the best meditation. And it's definitely not from the Buddha. <laughs> you know, the Buddha gets misquoted a lot on social media. Because he would actually say this Dharma is for developing energy, not for developing laziness. And with time and practice, we can see that sleep can be like this wave of energy. It's kind of low, and then it goes higher again. Our energy level is constantly changing throughout the day. So really kind of finding your middle way after accurately recognizing And then again, checking, how is the mind relating to sleepiness? Is there judgment? I mean, in all honesty, I did feel some judgment after Jack said that. Because, you know, I was like identifying as the awake person who was leading the retreat. So even right now, we can again pause for a moment and check for yourself. Is sleepiness right now or dullness present or absent? Awareness will tell you. So there's this hindrance of sense desire, of ill will and sleepiness, dullness. The fourth is called restlessness and worry. Very common experience. When there's restlessness, the mind is active. And quite often it's thinking, how can I fix this? You know, we sit and we realize all the work that we haven't done yet, all the emails we haven't responded to. Maybe already you've seen the mind thinking of all the things that need to be done after the retreat. You kind of start obsessively planning and thinking about it. Where that type of planning does have that element of wanting something. For me, it also arises when a memory of a problem all of a sudden arises. And in my practice, I start to think my way through it. Let me think it out. All examples of this restless energy. And worry has an element of fear in it. It's like praying for stuff you don't want. With the what-if thoughts. What if this is going to happen? What if that's going to happen? What would they think of me? 
This is from Mark Twain. He says, without understanding, our worries and thoughts create huge unnecessary problems. My life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. The bowl of water simile now, with restlessness and worry, is water that's touched by the wind. Cannot see clearly. And for this particular hindrance, it can be so helpful to actually really give a name, to accurately recognize and maybe use that noting technique that just allows for kind of a framework to see better. Oh, this is what's happening. Just like that framework of there is a body. Oh, restlessness is here. The way I usually frame it for myself is racing mind. I just love that image. Fidgety mind. And to really allow yourself to feel it as best as you can. There's one very powerful um, young woman who I taught in a juvenile detention center, Nikaya, and she said, I really like meditation, but I only see its benefit in the moment. You know, I love your class, but it's not really going to help me anywhere else. She really kept it, you know, that investigation very realistic and authentic. And then we talked about this naming technique because she was saying she was worried about going to court where her future was on the line. And then when she actually came back from court, she shared with us in a group how she used the noting technique. And she said, it didn't go away. I didn't feel good at all. My whole body was tense. The worrying thoughts keep coming and going and coming and going. But she said one big difference, though. When I came back on the hall and all the other girls asked me, hey, Nikkei, how was it? Unlike the previous times where I was having this complete blank out, she said I could word for word remember what the judge had said. So really, this very powerful kind awareness that sometimes can hold this difficulty. It kind of widens. I don't really like the window of tolerance, but more the window of radical kindness of trying to be with it. Because it's so easy to get identified with worry. Just a few months ago, I discovered a lump on this body. It was late at night. Everybody else in the household was sleeping. And the first thing that came to mind is refuges. Let me take refuge. So it started with, can I be with this? Can I feel it? Can I meet it with kindness? And it was quite overwhelming. It wasn't like, oh, now it's like, and I'm cool. No. Then I took refuge quite deliberately in Dharma, this wise view of these teachings. And this memory came to mind of this teaching where the Buddha said, and sickness will arise and you're not exempt. And I also try to tune into how was that sensation of the lump changing, kind of tuning into its impermanent nature. And still I was quite upset, hot. The what-if thoughts were really like 
And I really felt a sense of I that was kind of uh, attacked, you know, in a way. But I guess what happened then was, oh yeah, taking refuge in Sangha. And what I did is actually, I woke up my wife. I had the privilege to have someone there with me, and I shared it. And sometimes it can be so powerful to come in community where awareness and awareness meet, and to be and hold that space together. And this also made me realize that taking refuge in Buddha is not separate from in Dharma or in Sangha. It's all connected. And the lump was benign. And I also noticed that in some of the interviews, where people, or the group meetings, I should say, where the, where the comment was made, like, how it is that when we share something coming from what's happening and present in our life right now, when it's whole held with more people, sometimes that's exactly what's needed to be with it. Especially with restlessness and worry. So inviting you now to pause just for a moment and check, is restlessness or worrying present or absent now? (coughs) And then shifting to the last hindrance. This one the Buddha called doubt. And this one is actually hard to see. It's that experience when we're unsure, not trusting an experience. Of, um, in the communities I teach, in some of the communities there's a lot of tattoos. And the tattoo I've seen the most is that says, trust, no, and then the number one. Trust no one. So for a lot of us, we have all the reason to doubt and to not trust. And this doubt, it can be directed to ourselves and our abilities. Like these thoughts of, I'm not going to make it. I'm not able to do it. I remember thinking, and on that retreat with the man with the sounds, I'm not going to be able to sit 45 minutes through it. I was really doubting that. And then I would sit there and I would doubt my capacity to be kind with anger. And we can also direct this doubt externally to people, to friends, family members, politicians. We're having a lot of doubts of the state of affairs of the world, the climate. Here the simile the Buddha used for the bowl of water is water that is turbid, unsettled, muddy, and placed in the dark. And doubt, in this particular teaching, is also about doubting the practices 
doubting the teachings, doubting the teachers, or even maybe doubting the Buddha. And in this world, there's a lot of people who are, from my perspective and view, are um, right in their doubt. We've seen in the media all these um, cases of ethical misconduct by spiritual leaders with power. It's hard. So how can we be with doubt? Just to use it sometimes, that word, or even checking, and you're kind of unsure, asking yourself, is doubt present? And to check what else might be arising, maybe shame, or that sense of not really knowing what to do. The Buddha compared doubt with being lost in the desert. It's also like when you're at a crossroads, you don't know if you have to turn left or right, and you just don't do anything. This is kind of this uh, passive inability to, to, to figure it out. And so often doubt co-arises with the other hindrances, with, with ill will, with restlessness. So even just want to invite you now, as, just as an exercise, is doubt, this very moment, is it present or absent? And the reason to check from time to time the absence of hindrances is so helpful to kind of take away that illusion that we have in it all the time. So even if what you've really been seeing a lot as a, as a powerful, hindering mind state that's not part of this list, it might be shame or something, notice maybe when it's absent. And say to yourself, oh, this is the absence of shame. It feels like this. And when there's doubt and you really kind of feel it's overwhelming, See if you can find something that you can trust in. Is it possible, for example, to trust that the body will breed for you? Is it maybe a trustworthy place that sounds come and go? With all these hindrances and other powerful mind states, when you notice that being with it right in that moment is too overwhelming, respect that as well and skillfully redirect the mind somewhere else. Maybe doing that practice if there's a body and connecting to something that you can easily feel in the body in the midst of that hindrance playing out or connecting to loving kindness for a moment if that's available or compassion. What I found really helpful in times of doubt is also finding sources of inspiration. 
In daily life, it's so helpful sometimes to read wisdom from wisdom traditions or the Dharma. And to stay kind of connected with your highest aspirations. Maybe asking yourself now or maybe later on this retreat, what's my intention for being here? Or my intention for being part of this community here at IMS? (coughs) To allow yourself to connect with that. This is from Beyonce. She says, I'm str- I know I'm stronger in the songs than I really am. Sometimes I need to hear it myself. We all need to hear those empowering songs to remind us, especially when there's doubt. Just let us sit for a few moments. Checking perhaps if sense desire is present or absent right now. Is ill will, aversion, resistance present or absent right now? Sleepiness, dullness, knowing its presence or absence right now. Restlessness, worrying, present or not present, feels like this. Is there doubt or the absence of doubt? Before continuing our practice in silence, I'd just like to close with one of the most inspiring poems from me when it comes to connect with silence. It's by Ganilla Norris. The poem is called Beginning Silence. Within each of us there is a silence, a silence as vast as the universe. 
We are afraid of it and we long for it. When we experience that silence, we remember who we are. We're creatures of the stars, created from the birth of galaxies, created from the cooling of this planet, created from dust and gas, created from the elements, created from time and space, created from silence. Silence is the source of all that exists. The unfathomable stillness where vibration began. The first oscillation, the first word from which life emerged. Silence is our deepest nature, our home, our common ground, our peace. Silence reveals, silence heals. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.